I've got to say that um, when when I started thinking about doing connections, because this is the fourth year now that we've I've done connections tent, um, I had gone to see David and Jeannie this last year, and uh, I, it had been several years since we'd seen one another, and it just felt really good to see him again and see. G- I actually didn't get to see Jeannie on that trip. Didn't get to see Jeannie. She was up in Michigan still. Uh, but it just was so good to reconnect with David, and it just reminded me how much I loved him. And uh, we began to talk about his own journey and the way that God had been leading him, and it, it just the thought came into my mind. I said, man, you've just got to come and tell your story. And uh, it has gone just exactly as I would have hoped, and in fact, better. It's been great. Uh, at the time, uh, I thought that Boris Jovanov was going to be our preacher, and I thought, oh, David will be perfect. He'll offset Boris' wild and woolly ways. Um, but as it turns out, you're offsetting my wild and woolly ways, so it's working out really well. Uh, tomorrow night, um, much to the dismay of... Uh, uh, apparently the way that, you know, uh, the way that Australians think about camp meeting, we're, we're actually going to have, we're going to go out with a bang. And uh, in the four years that I've done camp meeting here, we always end with a concert. How many of you have been to any one of those concerts that we've done in Connections? Have they been a blessing? Yeah, Andrew, you've been there. You're paid to be there, mate. You're running sound. But anyway, tomorrow night, we're going to have an absolutely awesome concert and have you enjoyed the music and the, the, the ministry of the musicians? Can we, can we thank them? Excellent. So tomorrow night, we're going to have a concert. Robbie Morgan is going to be opening up. We're excited about that. Um, lo- I love Robbie's music, and I think he'll be doing mostly original stuff. Yeah, Robbie? So I'm really excited to hear that. So Robbie will do about 30 or 40 minutes worth of music, which we're excited about. Then Josh is going to do a concert, and I think he's going to involve uh, Britt and Mel and Katie. And he'll do, insofar as it's possible, he'll get them up on stage, and uh, it's going to be really great. So we want to invite you to come tomorrow night. Um, Tomorrow's a Sabbath. We want to end on a high day. And I'm still trying, um, unsuccessfully so far, to change, uh, insofar as it's possible, the, the culture here where we sort of have this, like, I, people were leaving today. Did you notice that? It's like they're leaving. It's like, oh, no, we got to go. It's the Sabbath. Anyway, in America, the, the, you know, I know some of you are tired of, me, tired of me saying this. I've said it the last four years. But we have, the, we have the biggest night is the Saturday night. It's like the thing that everybody looks forward to. It's the big, the big pinnacle of camp meeting is the Saturday night. And here it's like the big letdown. People just waiting around, like counting the moments until sunset so they can pack up and leave. And uh, I've, I've inquired about why that is. And somebody told me it's because it used to be that it took a long time to drive home. It was a long time to get home, but that's basically gone now, right? Like, I can drive home from here in four hours, easy, because of the the new highway, right? Or maybe slightly over four hours. How long does it take to get... What's the furthest south place in our conference? Like, is it... I'm talking on the coast. Is it Newcastle? Woi Woi? How long does it take to get to Woi Woi? Five? It's better than 17, mate. Um, so anyway, the idea that people are saying, oh, you know, we've got to leave early because it takes so long to drive home. But those days are basically gone. And so we, uh, we're just going to continue to do it as long as I'm in charge of connections. We're going to have a big, wonderful thing happening on Saturday night. So I want to invite you to be here 
to our concert tomorrow night. It's going to be Robbie and Josh, and it's going to be awesome. How many of you are planning on being here? Great, good. And they're announcing it in Connections. They're announcing it in 18+, so that'll be great. Another thing I want to mention is um, we took up an offering tonight for the Big Camp Appeal. I, I do want you to be praying about what the Spirit of God is moving up on your heart to contribute by way of a pledge for the coming year. And uh, we'll be taking up an offering tomorrow as well for that. And I just wanted to remind you. Um, I think that's it. Nate, do you have my video ready? Is that, is that a thumbs up? So remember I told you yesterday that I had a really good Hawkins video myself. Do you want to see it? It's a really good one. Put it up, Nate, if you would. So this is me pushing Luke up and down the hallway. And look at how Hawkins never takes his eye off of this boy. Now, I'm going to go a little too fast here, and he's going to let me know it at the end. You watch. I need to reassure him that I'm everything's all right. I have Luke's best interest in mind, and we're having fun. Look at this. Good dog. Good dog. You're good. That dog is an angel. Is that right? That dog is an absolute angel. I, I just love that. Uh, we're going to have prayer, and then we're going to get into a little Bible study, and it's going to be great. Does that sound good? Father in heaven, bless us as we spend some time in Scripture. Lord, you have ministered to us tonight through the music. The music's been amazing. And Father, even that song that was just sung there is the perfect setup for what we're going to be talking about here tonight. Be thou my vision. Father, tonight talking about blindness and vision. And most of us, probably all of us in this room, so far as I'm aware, believe that we can see. We can find our way around a campus and, and we can see words on a page and we can look into the sky and see the clouds and the birds and, and it's great. Uh, Father, help us now to see what scripture says about blindness and seeing. And may you disabuse our minds perhaps of what it means to be blind and what it means to be sighted. And may we have an opportunity to assess spiritually, not ophthalmologically, Father, but spiritually whether or not we are sighted or blind. And I believe you're going to do something really special in this tent tonight, Father. So please, come and do it. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. So we got all the way through John chapter 6 yesterday, and then we spent a little bit of time in John chapter 7 where Jesus has made his way to the Feast of Tabernacles, the final feast in the Jewish calendar year. And uh, Jesus has gotten once again, unsurprisingly, as John tells the story, into a conflict with the religious leaders of his day. And uh, as we've mentioned, that volume just continues to be turned up throughout the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 7, we concluded yesterday with verse 17, if anyone willeth to do my will, if anyone wants to do my will, he shall know of the doctrine. And we've mentioned this a couple times before that the knowing is in the going, right? Jesus says, if you want to know, not merely believe, but know, you have to go. The knowing is in the going. Well, what happens after that in John chapter 7 is that Jesus goes right up into the heart of the feast and he makes some really strong statements about his identity. He says, come to me and, and you will receive water. Out of your, your belly will flow water. He's giving this invitation. It was, it was considered totally blasphemous, totally absurd. Um, and uh, Jesus is getting into a heightened conflict here with the religious leaders. That spills over into John chapter 8. 
John chapter 8, the first 12 verses, was actually a very difficult passage not to preach. Uh, I was sorely tempted to preach that here this evening, but I thought it's a story that's quite well known to most of us, the story of the woman caught in adultery. And uh, here again, we see Jesus on trial in a significant sense, on trial for the claims that he's making, the things that he's saying. And you, you get the sense that, that the religious leaders are getting less and less interested in questions of identity, and now they're just trying to figure out, how can we get rid of this guy, right? They have heard enough. They have seen enough. They were already plotting to kill him back in chapter 5. By the time we get to chapter 8, which is about a year later from chapter 5, the, the, the volume is turned up, the intensity is turned up, the hostility is turned up, and they want to get rid of Jesus. And that spills over into a fascinating conversation in John chapter 8 that could be summarized in the colloquial phrase, who's your daddy? Right? They get into a big conversation with the religious leaders, and the religious leaders are like, Abraham's our dad. And Jesus is like, Abraham is not your dad. If Abraham was your dad, you would believe like Abraham. Satan is your dad. And they're like, what? You think Satan's our dad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Satan is your dad, and God is my dad. And it's this whole like conversation about, about who's your daddy, right? And they find you know, Jesus' answers to be absolutely ridiculous, absurd, blasphemous. And it climaxes probably with John chapter 8, verse 58. John chapter 8, verse 58, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Here laying claim to that ego statement in the Greek. I am. And we've discussed in here that the gospel of John is built organizationally around the seven formal equivalences of John. We spent time on the first of those, which is I am the bread of life. Today we'll spend time on the I am the light of the world, which occurs in both John 8 and John 9. We'll spend our time tonight in John 9. Um, Also, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. But, But Jesus there says, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He's laying claim here to being the very God of the Old Testament. He's laying claim to the name, the sacred name, Yahweh. And of course, this was just considered patently absurd. He was misguided, he was a lunatic, he was a danger to the religious heritage of the Jews. At least this is what the religious leaders thought. And all the while, Jesus, through these formal equivalences, is trying to orient them to who he is. He's been doing it all through the Gospel of John. I am the light of the world, he says uh, in John chapter 8. He says, I am the bread of life. Moving backward in John chapter 4, he says, I am the living water. In John chapter 3, he says to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So, so Jesus is trying to draw their mind to who he is, but all they can hear is blasphemy. All they can hear is absurdity. These temeritous claims that Jesus is making about his supposed identity, they believe that he is poised to potentially upset the delicate balance that exists between them and the aristocracy and certainly the Romans. And so they're trying to come up with a way to get rid of him, to get rid of him. In John chapter 8, one of the questions that comes up, it's a question that that sounds very similar to the question that the woman at the well put to Jesus. You might remember when Jesus promises her living water, she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Right? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? And the implied answer to that is no. Of course, I'm not greater than one of the patriarchs. And a very similar question is asked in John chapter 8 in this heightened, tense interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders, the who's your daddy conversation. And in verse 53 of John chapter 8, before we get to the classic I am culmination, it says, are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets who are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? And of course, the implied answer here is also no. 
The woman had said, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? And, and she expected, I suppose, that Jesus would be very modest and very demure. And no, 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 I, w- I would make no such claim. But in fact, he is greater. And here the claim is, who do you think you are? This was the way that the Gospel of John started when they, when they went to John the Baptist and said, who are you? And the question really is not who are you, but who do you think you are? And now the question for Jesus is, who are you? Are you greater than our father Abraham? And the implied answer is no, of course, no, no. I would not deign to find an equivalence with the father of the faithful, the great patriarch Abraham. But Jesus actually goes a step further and says, before Abraham, I am. And the the religious leaders of the day certainly understood what Jesus was saying because the very last verse of John 8 ends with these words. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. We will spend our time now in John chapter 9. I'm just getting you from where we've been to where we are. In John chapter 9, we are going to, maybe a better way to say this is this. We've already been introduced by the author, John, with the idea that John is very comfortable steeping narratives in irony, right? There's a lot of irony that's taking place in the Gospel of John. One of them we mentioned is that a Samaritan woman is explaining messianic expectations to the Messiah, right? The question is being asked, are you greater than Jacob? Are you greater than Abraham? The implied answer is no, but the actual answer is yes. And so there's a lot of irony that takes place in the Gospel of John, but probably the height of that irony uh, is going to take place in chapter 9. So prepare yourself for, frankly, some humor, no small degree of irony, and this is going to be really great. The reader in John chapter 9 is being guided by John to see the meaning and the significance of the mission of the Son of Man and to believe in Him. We'll be talking about what it means to be sighted and what it means to be blind. That's why I wore my Peregrine Falcon shirt tonight, right? Somebody told me recently, this is actually my very favorite shirt that I own, and somebody walked right up to me and said, that is, uh, what did they say? That is an atrocious shirt. I was like, what are you talking about? This is my favorite shirt. I love this shirt. She said, oh, that shirt is ugly as can be. We actually took a vote in the last Arise class that I I taught on this shirt about whether or not it was a good shirt. Are you in the atrocious category? No, no, you're in the the thumbs up category. Good. We won't take a similar vote tonight. Um... Because I know it's amazing and it was probably just jealousy spilling over. I, I forgive her. I've forgiven her for her covetous attitude. But so, so this shirt is covered in peregrine falcons. It's from my favorite clothing manufacturer and one of my very favorite birds on it. And peregrine falcons, like all birds of prey, are sighted. They, they see very, very well, exceptionally well, far greater than anything that, that a human being can see. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about sightedness. So we're in John chapter 9 and verse 1. John chapter 9, verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him and said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And uh, here they articulate what, what was kind of a perfunctory and uh, rather simplistic view of how illness worked and deformity worked and disease worked. I mean, if somebody was sick, if somebody was ill, if somebody was paralyzed or blind, there must be some cause and the cause must be sin. And so here the disciples are giving voice to something that John is actually going to revisit. The implication is basically this. This guy is a sinner 
or his parents are sinners, and uh, they believe they're probably asking a question of very deep theological significance. Jesus, let us into the, the, the treasury of knowledge that you have. You know what is in man. Why is this particular man blind? Because he is a great sinner or because his parents are a great sinner? The answer that Jesus gives is not exactly clear to me, uh, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but, but we'll just mention it here. Verse 3. Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him, right? The idea that, that no, 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 this simplistic idea that somebody's a sinner and therefore they're cursed by God or punished by God, it doesn't work like that. He said, there's something else going on here. Verse four, I must work the works of him who sent me. That's a key word, sent. We'll come back to it. While it is day, the night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, here's the second of our formal equivalences, the I am equivalences, I am the light of the world. Verse 6, and when he said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay or mud. Jesus spits on the ground, he makes mud with his saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the mud. Now this is very interesting. Expositors read this and scholars read this and they're like, you know, what is Jesus doing here? Is this like, did he learn this in an apothecary shop? Is he like reenacting a sort of, you know, modern day idea of a poultice? Is this some sort of natural remedy with a little bit of Messiah power, you know, woven into it? What's going on here? But I think a Jewish reader would immediately pick up what's going on here. A Jewish reader would discern that, that what's happening is, is you have the creator, right? Not a magician, not a busker, not a street side, you know, snake charmer. You have the creator who in the beginning made man in a very good condition out of dirt. And when he did so, he had spoken things into existence and he spoke with his mouth. And so in a really powerful Jewish Hebraic uh, uh, combination here. What Jesus does is takes, takes saliva from his mouth with which he speaks. He combines it with the dust of the earth. And what we see here is not a street side snake healer. What we see is the creator interacting with his creation. Taking the dirt as, 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 in fact, that word mud is going to occur five times in this narrative. The mud, the mud, the mud, the mud, the mud. And in one of the passages here, the one that we've just read, it, in the, in the, it's actually in the possessive. It says, it, Jesus took his mud. He, he took his mud. He took his saliva and the dirt and he made his mud in the possessive. When Jesus stooped down in Genesis to form man of the dust of the earth, he took his mud, his mud, and he made man in perfect condition, right? It was not a blind man. It was not a paralyzed man. It was not an ill man. It was a whole man. And Jesus here is not performing some sort of natural remedy as such. This is the creator reaching down into the very dirt out of which man is made and mixing it with saliva from the mouth which he speaks, speaks life. Let there be light and there is light. Let there be life and there is life. And the creator forms, places it on his eyes, the broken part of this man, places it on his eyes. Creation is in full view here. Now, creation is even more in view when we realize that narrative has not yet told us this, but we're going to find it out in a few verses. What day is this healing taking place on? This, this healing is taking place on Sabbath, right? So, so the Jewish reader is saying, oh, this is the day of creation. This is the day of rest. This is the day of wholeness. And for Jesus, 
The Sabbath was a particular, it was a special day, it was an important day. It was the right day to perform some of his greatest and most provocative acts of healing. He chose the Sabbath to liberate people from disease, to liberate them from the, the lack of wholeness. The word health comes from the Old English holf. Holf, and it's just, it means what it sounds like, whole. To be whole. To be in health is to be whole. And, and Jesus here t- uses the mud and he makes the man whole on the Sabbath. Verse 7 says, And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. Now, expositors are not exactly unanimous on why Jesus does this. Why send him to the pool? Um, is it for the sort of um, uh, advertising that he will get? That seems unlikely because Jesus has tried to distance himself from the crowds. Is it because the name of the pool actually means sent? And Jesus here is, is uh, again and again in the Gospel of John, Jesus has referred to himself as sent. The Father has sent me. The Father has sent me. The Father has sent me. I am sent from my Father. And Jesus here, the sent one, sends what will become a new disciple. And so he says, go wash in the pool of scent, scent, not as a smell, but scent as in scent on your way. So he went and washed and he came back seeing. Now, what's fascinating about this narrative is that the blind man has not yet seen Jesus. And there's this tension in the narrative all the way through the the chapter in which the blind man is not going to get to see Jesus until the end of the chapter. It's really cool. It's actually very much like creation. Come with me just in your mind's eye to creation. Think about that again. Here, Adam has been formed from the dust of the earth. And then God has breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And as Adam goes from blind, right, non-breathing, non-seeing, non-living, when he opens his eyes, the first thing he sees is Messiah. The first thing he sees is the face of God. Right. And this is the thing to which Revelation is heading when it says there in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 that we will see his face. It's absolutely amazing. And so here this blind man is in the process of being made whole because the creator has grabbed some of the earth and some of his spittle and he's put it on his eyes and he has sent him. But he's still blind. Hadn't yet seen Jesus. Wouldn't know Jesus if he saw him. Wouldn't recognize him. Verse 8. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen he who was blind said, hey, this isn't this the guy that sat and begged? He he looks similar enough, but he's walking around. He sees some said, yeah, that's the one that is definitely the one that typically sits here. And others said, no, no, no. He just looks like the one that typically sits here. And he said, no, it's me. Now, here's where the humor begins. And it is humorous, absolutely humorous. He said, I'm the guy. I am the one. I don't just look like the guy. I'm the guy. Therefore, they said to him, how were your eyes opened? How did that happen? And he answered and said, a man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes and said to me, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So I washed and I received my sight. Then they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. Now that phrase I don't know is going to occur five or six times in this chapter alone. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Nobody seems to know anything in this chapter. Right? Nobody seems to know anything in this chapter. And we have encountered throughout the Gospel of John people who think they know things that they don't really know. Oh, we know who this is. This is Jesus. He's the son of Mary and Joseph. The woman at the well. Oh, I know when Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. 
Nicodemus and his words of combative flattery to Jesus. We know you are a teacher sent from God. So, so John is setting us up again and again with his, his use, his very poetic, very creative use of the word know to say that the people that think they know something actually don't know something. And what we're going to discover here is that somebody who seems not to know something actually does. He's setting us up for an irony. And the irony, I'll just give you a little bit of what's coming. The irony is only going to deepen when the guy who sees is blind and the guy who was blind sees. And so they go to the guy who actually does know. How were your eyes made well? And he says, well, this is what a, a guy named Jesus. Not an uncommon name, by the way, in first century Judaism. A guy named Jesus uh, made some mud, put it on my eyes. And I remember that voice. Oh, that was a beautiful voice. And he said to me, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And I went and washed in the pool of Siloam. And now I can see. And they're like, where is this guy? And he says, I don't know. I don't know where he is. Now, this is going to invite scrutiny from the religious leaders who we've already seen are nosing uh, through their various spies and their, 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 their eyes, their tentacles that are out, especially in Judea. Jesus is likely still here in Jerusalem. It's difficult to know exactly where Jesus is, but, but he's just been in this conversation in John chapter 7 and 8 that's in and around the temple. There's no indication in John chapter 9 that Jesus has left. So he's probably still in Judea, which was the least safe place for Jesus to be. We've already noted that several times he travels to Galilee because Galilee was a safer place for Jesus to be. The crowds were less. The hostility was less. And so Jesus here is, we might say, as as sad as it is to say this, he's kind of in enemy territory here. Right. And so very likely this is taking. In fact, there's every reason to believe he's in Jerusalem. If he said go wash in the pool of Siloam, it's unlikely that he sent him 110 kilometers to wash in the pool of Siloam that was in Jerusalem. Right. You get the sense that he's he's within the immediate environs of Jerusalem. Jesus wouldn't ask a blind man to walk a hundred kilometers or more. So this interrogation is going to begin. And it's an interrogation not unlike John chapter 8 with the woman caught in adultery, where it looks like the woman is on trial, but really it's Jesus who's on trial. Here, it's, it's going to look like the man is on trial, and in some significant sense he is. But what the religious leaders are really after is how can we get Jesus? Verse 13, they brought him to, they brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. It seemed like the right thing to do. They're the religious people, right? You would think the safe thing to do would be to bring the freshly healed, the newly whole to the religious people, right? They're going to celebrate. I wish it was always the case that the safest place to bring people that are being healed, people that are being made whole to church. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if the church was the safest place to bring people that are on their way to God? Wouldn't that be awesome? Is that always the case? It's not always the case. Right? So, so, so it, it's innocent enough. Hey, here's a guy that's been made well. He's, this is a miracle. This is a super amazing action. Let's bring him to the religious people. But this is going to play right into the hands of those that are out to get Jesus. Verse 14. Now, it was Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Now we know. Creation is in the background here. Now the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And so he said to them second time now, well, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see, right? It's a shorter version. He's, he's telling the story again. It's a little shorter version. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. They know now that it's Jesus. This man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. Now you might be thinking, well, wait, how do you know that? Wherein is there a violation of Sabbath? And most expositors agree that when Jesus knelt down, 
and grabbed that little bit of dirt that he would have grabbed and mixed it with his saliva, he was mixing it together and he was kneading it. And kneading is one of the 39 forbidden activities by the rabbis on the Sabbath. So he has broken the Sabbath, right? In forming the little mud poultice in his hands, he has violated the Sabbath. I wonder how many people have been brought into our churches people who are on their way to wholeness, people who are on their way to healing and well-meaning but ultimately misguided religious people are making people an offender over a very small thing and they're failing to see the amazing thing that's happening right in front of them. Can you say amen, church? Like, it's a miracle. It's a living miracle right in front of you. Someone has just gotten up heroin. Someone has just uh, become uh, 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 alcohol-free. Somebody, whatever the thing is, somebody is recovering from unbelief. Somebody, whatever the thing is, and then we say, you know, I just wish they wouldn't wear so much jewelry. Just wish they would dress a little nicer. I wish they wouldn't smoke in the church parking lot, right? There's a miracle standing in front of us, but we say, oh, they've broken the Sabbath. They've broken some thing that they will eventually, you know, grow to better understand. We can miss the point. You know that. So then in verse um, 17, they said to the blind man again, uh, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes and he stated what would have been the obvious thing. He's a prophet. That is a, to say a man of, of religious power and religious significance. He, he is a prophet. He doesn't yet know that he's a Messiah. He has no inkling that he's Messiah. He just, he just says the thing that was the most obvious thing. I think that he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe. And right there you have a significant summary of much of what's taking place in the Gospel of John. The words know and the words believe are hugely important in the Gospel of John. People do not know. The Samaritans back in John chapter 4 believed, believed, believed. We no longer believe because you told us, woman. We now believe because we have seen and heard with our own eyes. And and we have this this parallel we've discussed of people that are beginning to believe and those that are not believing and here it just says expressly the jews did not believe right the jews did not believe and and john is being very intentional with his words here he wants you to pick up on that and say the people that should be embracing the messianic identity and mission of jesus are missing it the jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight and they asked them they're really you get the sense oh these are these are investigators. There's an interrogation going on here. They're going to get to the bottom of this miracle. Never mind celebrating the good news. They're going to get to the bottom of what's really going on. Verse 19, and they said, is this your son who you say was born blind? That who you say is, is uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? It's leading. It's suggestive. It doesn't, they don't believe it. Is this your son who you say was born blind. There's skepticism all over this. There's hostility all over this. How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son. Well, they're fair enough. And that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, two times in this verse, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. Let him speak for himself. So two more times, we don't know. We don't know. The parents have been brought in to try and bring some sort of clarity to this conversation. And two times they say, we don't know the circumstances under which yet yeah, that is our son. And yes, he was blind. We don't know why he now sees. Verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that this was Messiah, that they would be put out of the synagogue. And so the, the, the parents are you know, justifiably um, afraid. 
they don't understand fully all the dynamics that are taking place in the Gospel of John. All they know is that there's a threat on those that would suggest that this man is the promised Messiah. And so they, they say, we don't know. We don't know. He's, he's old enough. You ask him. Verse 23. Therefore, his parents said he is of age. Ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and they said to him, this is now like the third interview. Give God the glory. This is sort of an exhort, a formulaic exhortation to, to leave behind and just give God the glory. We don't want to hear any stories about mud. We don't want to hear any stories about saliva. And we certainly don't want to hear any stories about Jesus. If you notice something very interesting in the narrative, the man said, a guy called Jesus, but the Pharisees don't say his name. You, you almost get the sense that there is such an antipathy here. There is such a sinister hatred for Jesus that they say, this man, this man, they cannot bring themselves to say the name. And so here they just say, leave all of this foolishness behind. Give glory to God. God has worked a miracle. And in fact, they were right. God had worked a miracle. And then verse 25, we know that this man is a sinner. We know here again, we are confronted with people who think they know something, but who in fact do not. We know that this man, Jesus is a sinner. When they had said to him, give God glory, what they'd actually missed was that it was God who had worked a miracle and he had worked a miracle on a sinner. Not that he himself was a sinner. We'll come back to that in a moment. Verse 25. And he answered and said, well, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. Well, excuse me, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. And then this key phrase here, which is hugely significant in the gospel of John and especially in chapter nine. But one thing I know. This sermon tonight is titled when one thing is enough. When one thing is enough. They're trying to engage this man in a sort of controversy about the identity of Jesus. And is he a prophet or is he a sinner? And Jesus is the the man is like, look, 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 look. I don't know. All I know is I was blind on the side of the road and somebody walked up to me and asked me if I wanted to see. I said I did. He put some mud on my eyes. He told me to go wash and now I can see. That's what I know. What I know is I used to not be able to see and now I can see. And I don't have a lot of time and energy for this religious controversy that you're trying to engage me in. One thing I know, friends, one thing is enough. Sometimes people say to me, man, I wish I, I wish I knew the Bible as well as you, Pastor David. I wish I could read and get the things out of the Bible that you get. And I say, look, 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 look. At the end of the day, it's not your knowledge. And we've been trying to make this clear. Not that you shouldn't learn more. Not that you might not want to come to a rise or, or to study and get into scripture or study the Sabbath school lesson or where it might be. But don't confuse the idea that an increase in knowledge, theological knowledge or biblical knowledge somehow makes you a better follower of Jesus. It can. There is a correlation there, but there's not a necessary correlation. Sometimes it's the simplest people who just have the most childlike faith who just say, look, I don't know all of the details. I can't talk about epistemology and ontology and theology and pneumatology and soteriology. I don't even know what those words mean. But one thing I know, I used to be blind and now I see. And that's enough. I'm not suggesting that you should be intellectually satisfied with mediocrity. No, but I'm just saying there's different kinds of people. Right. There's people that just love to get into the text and love to get into the languages and to the idioms and and to try and pick apart exegetically the passage. Right. I'm, I'm wired that way. People say, hey, David, give me a list of the top 10 books that you recommend. And half the time I say, you wouldn't want to read the books I read. You, you wouldn't want to read the books I read. 
right? I, I'm, my wife and I are very different in this regard. My wife is a hugely intelligent person, very wonderful person, but she wouldn't touch the books I read. She has no interest in it. And frankly, I don't have an interest in the book she reads. She reads stories about, you know, like angels flying down and protecting people when trucks could have run over them. And she writes, she reads stories. And I think stories are nice, but I don't read those books, right? My, my, my wife is one of the most faithful. She didn't know I was going to say any of this and I wasn't planning on saying it. But she's one of the most faithful, amazing, godly women I've ever met in my life. Hardly a day goes by. I mean, in the 19 years we've been married, you could count on one hand the number of days that she has not begun her day in our marriage with her devotions and with prayer. The kids are going crazy. The house is burning down. She's going to have her devotions. She's amazing. She's just, she, she has, and I say this as a high compliment for my wife. My wife has a simple faith. I do not mean to imply that she's an unintelligent person. She's a very intelligent person. But she cannot really be bothered with all of the theological sophistication and details. For some strange reason, she seems to enjoy my preaching. That's astonishing. But, but she, she just, for her, it's just like, God said it, I believe it, and that's enough. That's enough. And, and this man is like, look, I don't know. I don't know if he's a prophet. You tell me he's a sinner. It doesn't seem likely that he would be a sinner. But here's, I do know one thing. I used to be on the side of the road unable to see. And now I can see. So you go sort out all of the theological, ecclesiastical, metaphysical implications of that. But I can tell you this. One thing I know. And I want to tell you tonight. One thing is enough. One thing is enough. Now, if you know two things, that's fine. But make sure that at least one of the two or the three or the four or the 40 things that you know is that you used to be blind and now you see. One thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now, here is a very insightful question because they're trying to get to the manner. They're trying to figure out, did he break the Sabbath? Right. They want to know, was he needing how much mud was there? Was it, was it enough mud that it required him to move his hands in a kneading motion, right? Aha, we've got him. I mean, can you just see the absurdity of this? Here you have a miracle standing in front of you, and they want to, they want to know the particulars. They want to know the mechanics of how you... Well, first of all, he couldn't have seen it anyway. I mean, the guy was blind. He's like, I didn't see how much mud there was, mate. I didn't see it. I didn't see how much saliva there was. I didn't see how much grip he used with his hands. I don't know. I don't know all these details. How did he open your eyes? Verse 27. And he said, I've already told you that and you didn't listen. And I love this. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? This is suggestive. This is pointed. Here you have the, the, the religiously elementary teaching the religiously elite. Oh, I know why you want to know all the details about the healing and about this man. Because you too want to become one of his followers. Is that right? Oh, this is going to set them off. They're going to, this is absolutely unacceptable. No one is going to talk to them this way. Verse 28, and they reviled him and they said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We follow the law. We follow Moses. We know, verse 29, we know, here we are again, somebody that knows something, but in fact does not know. Look at what they think they know. Verse 29, we know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, Fourth time, we do not know where he is from. And there, there is so much irony in that verse. Because Jesus will say, is already said in the Gospel of John, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. So they're saying, we read Moses, we believe in Moses, and we don't know who this guy is. You could have walked up and said, you're not reading Moses. 
You're not reading Moses because Moses is writing about this guy that you have rejected as a sinner and that you're trying to murder. No, we're disciples of Moses. We don't know who this guy is. And so here the irony is is thickening. The plot is thickening. We don't know where this guy is from. Well, Jesus has already made it clear. He is from above. He is from his father. He has been sent. Verse 30. The man answered and said to them, well, this is a marvelous thing. His cheekiness is in full display here. Well, this is a marvelous thing. This is an amazing thing that you, fifth time, do not know where he is from. And yet this guy opened my eyes. You religious people are unaware. Wow, this is a marvelous thing that you are unaware of this man that possesses so much religious power. Verse 31. Now he continues. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. This is interesting. He here states an axi- what he believes is an axiomatic rabbinical idea. He, he thinks he's telling the truth here when he says, we know that God doesn't hear sinners. God does not hear sinners. Now, John has carefully crafted this narrative. Remember how this John chapter nine opened. Hey, we found this guy, Jesus. He was born blind. Who sinned? Who's the sinner? Is he the sinner or is his parents the sinner? And in the conversation where, where, where the man is trying to explain to the religious leaders, you know, how his eyes were healed, he actually borrows unwittingly and incorrectly from their own theological idea. He says, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. Is that true? I'm asking you tonight, is it true that God does not hear the pleas of sinners? If God doesn't hear the pleas of sinners, every one of us is in trouble. If it's true that God doesn't hear sinners, we're in big trouble. Oh, he says, we know that God does not hear sinners. If anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, that's who he hears. Verse 32, yet since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of a man who was born blind. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And in that prepositional phrase, they're from He encapsulates the whole message of the gospel of John. If this man was not from God, from God, that, 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 he's got the truth and he doesn't know it. He's got the truth right there. He's, he's actually thinking more clearly and with greater lucidity than the religious leaders of the day. It, 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 It occurs to me that if this man were not from God, he would not be able to do these things. In that single prepositional phrase, from, we have this basic idea that it's the truth of the gospel of John is on full display. Verse 34, they answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and you are teaching us. And they cast him out. I love this idea that the religious leaders are distancing themselves from a man who they believe is a sinner. And, and the greatest insult that they can heap on him is that you were born in sins and God doesn't hear sinners. Now, John is going to pick that up and he's going to run with it because look at verse 35. Jesus heard. What did Jesus do? Jesus heard. You know what he heard? He heard about a situation that a sinner was in. Right in right in the very immediate context, it says we know that God doesn't hear sinners. And the very next thing that the very Jesus is now back in the story. Right. We haven't seen Jesus since basically the first few verses. It's now been this whole dialogue. Now, Jesus hears about this. 
He hears about the needs and about the plight and about the struggles of sinners. So the idea, John wants you to know that the idea that God doesn't hear sinners is untrue because the very thing that Jesus is said to do, the action that is attributed to Jesus is Jesus what? He heard. Jesus heard. Friends, I got good news for you tonight. God hears the needs and the prayers and the pleas and the cries of sinners. Hallelujah. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, that's the whole Bible in a single phrase. Listen to me, church. That's the whole Bible in a single phrase. When Jesus found the sinner. That's the whole Bible. When Jesus found the sinner. Garden of Eden. They've sinned. And it says that God goes looking for the sinner. Abraham, Joshua, Heschel, the, 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 the Greek, or Greek, what am I saying? The Hebrew rabbi of, of, of recent times wrote a book called God in Search of Man. And the, the thesis of that book was basically this idea that, hey, sweetie. Oh, come here. The idea is basically that, go, go be free. Bam, right in the head. <laughs> Sorry about that. These things have a mind of their own. The idea in the book is that basically all pagan religions are built around a single idea. Man in search of God. Man in search of God. And Heschel says what makes Judaism different is the, uh, it's a reversal of that basic construct, that basic formula. It's God in search of man. And this is great. When Jesus heard, it says, he went and found him. Friends, I want to tell you something. Jesus is looking for you. Jesus is looking for you. Jesus hears you. He's looking for you. One of the ironies here is that whether or not Jesus finds you is really up to you. It's really up to you whether or not you are found. If you choose, if you elect to be found. And when he had found him, he said to him, Hey, uh, now this is interesting. Because, you know, the, the details are sparse. So I'm going to fill in the gaps here, and I hope you don't mind the way that I fill them in with my imagination. This guy doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know who Jesus is. So a man walks up to him, and I think he recognizes the voice. He says, um, do you believe in the Son of God? Ah, that's the voice. That's the voice. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the voice says, do you believe in the Son of God? I mean, at this point, you're going to believe almost anything. You used to be blind, and now you see one thing you know. And when he hears that voice, do you believe in the Son of God? Verse 36, he answered and said, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? I want to believe. Uh, who is he? Just, just point me in the right direction. I'll, go, I'll travel land and sea. Anybody that would restore to me my sight, I, I will believe. I, wh where's he at? Back in John chapter 1, in the prologue to the very gospel that we're in, John chapter 1, it, it says things like, Jesus is the light. And in, that's verse 4, and in verse 12 it says things like, that, that, that who, whoever received him, he gave the right to become the sons of God. To those that believe in his name. And so Jesus walks up in that lovely voice. He says, do you, be, do you believe, sir, in the Son of God? And he said, man, I, where is he? Show me the Son of God. 
I will believe in him. I am prepared to believe because I used to be blind and now I see. And here we go. One of the great revelations, verse 37. And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and it is he who is talking with you now. This is creation. This is creation. Just as as Adam had had God step up to him and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The first thing that he saw was the face of God. And one of the very first things in the narrative that this man sees is the face of Jesus. Do you believe in the Son of God? Where is he? Who is he? Point him to me. You have seen him and are looking at him now. Uh, It's me. And oh, this is great. Look at this. So much in verse 38. Mel Burrett, I thought of you when I saw this verse. And he said, Lord, I believe. Now just draw a straight line from verse 25. One thing I know, right down to verse 38. Lord, I believe. And then draw a line to this part. The next phrase. And he worshipped. If you get those three ideas in your mind, you you get the whole thing. One thing I know, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped. Worship is the spontaneous, appropriate, uh, enthusiastic response to coming to see when you used to be blind. Worship is not the calculated. Worship, it should be spontaneous. It should be amazing. It should be enthusiastic. It's just like. He worshipped him. He just would have fallen at his feet. He wouldn't have had any care for who was to his right or who was to his left. This is Messiah. He used to be blind and now he sees and he's looking at Messiah and he says, Lord, I believe. John has been walking us through people, person after person and a group of people after groups of people that do not believe in. And here he looks Jesus in the face and he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Get that clear in your mind. One thing I know and Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Verse 39, and Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world that those who see, that those who do not see may see and that those uh, that see may be blind. Very interesting. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and they said, are we also blind? And Jesus response is perfect. It's the last verse of the chapter. Jesus said, well, if you were blind, you wouldn't be sinning. But since you say we see, therefore your sin remains. This little, what theologians call a pericope. Uh, it's a funny little word. It's fun to say, pericope. Um, a pericope is a, is a unit of scripture, a unit of the text. And John chapter 9 is, a, is an enclosed pericope. It's a story. And it starts off in chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, where the question is, who's the sinner? Who's the sinner? And it ends in verse 52 with Jesus saying, the Pharisees are the sinners. The Pharisees are the sinners. Those that think they see, in fact, are blind. And the one who was blind, in fact, can see. Oh, there is so much irony in here, friends. I I just want you to get a feel for the fact that John is making the point. The religious leaders, the religious elite, the religious scholars missed the Messiah. And the one who knew only one thing believed and worshipped. He was thought to be a sinner, but Jesus heard his prayer and the Pharisees were thought to be holy. And Jesus concludes by saying, if you were blind, you wouldn't be sinners. But since you say we see everything, then your sin remains. You're the sinner, not the man, not his parents. And in a a ninja like move of a reversal of fortune, the ones that appeared to be holy were in fact the sinners. And the ones that looked to be sinners were elevated to holiness because they believed and worshiped. 
It's not how many things you know. It's the one thing that you know. And the one thing is a someone and the someone is Jesus. Do you know Jesus? That's the question. That's the question as, as Glenn walked us through in our morning meetings. In the judgment, the question is not who you are, but whose you are. To whom do you belong? This man believed. And in believing, he received salvation. What is clear is that true sight is ironically contingent on having true blindness. When Jesus declares that only those who are blind can truly see, he declares that there is a blindness that is innate to fallen humanity that is necessary to the Christian experience. We are all blind in some significant sense. No wonder the author of the great hymn, Amazing Grace, said, I once was blind, but now I see. What is clear is that true sight is ironically contingent on having true blindness. When Jesus declares that only those who are blind can truly see, he declares that there is a blindness that is innate to fallen humanity and is necessary to the Christian existence. It is the illusion of self. From birth, every person is blind to the light of the world and separated from God. True blindness goes much deeper than the eyes. It is a disease that creates blindness to oneself. For the Christian, however, blindness becomes the channel of belief. It becomes the posture of worship. True belief is expressed not in spite of blindness, but by means of blindness, manifesting the works of God and the Christian whose own story testifies to the one who can truly heal. Friends, tonight, Jesus is asking you, do you see or are you blind? And the answer is, is that all of us by nature, as a part of our fallen humanity, are blind. But Jesus fortunately said, I didn't come to bring healing to those that were already well. I came to bring healing to those that were sick. I don't know how many things you know here tonight, but I hope you know one thing. I hope you can say with this blind man, one thing I know, that once I was blind... And now I see. What does it look like to see? What does it look like to see through Christian eyes? What it looks like to see is to see the world as fundamentally made up of not a bunch of us and thems, but just an us. Just a group of people that are in need of a savior. And we have been trained from a very young age to see the world as us and them. Right? We're white and they're not white. We are Australian and they are another nation. We are Christian and they are Muslim. We are and they are us and them. There are all kinds of divisions, socioeconomic divisions, racial divisions, educational divisions, professional divisions. And and one of the most important parts of seeing is you see that everybody is a sinner in need of a savior. And when you have that sort of awareness that you are not greater than or less than, you can begin to view the world as as all in the same boat you're in, is in the same situation you're in, is in the same neediness that you are in. What does it mean to see? It means to see that every day you need Jesus. Every moment you need Jesus. Every moment you need to have an awareness that you are dust and that God has made you and formed you and fashioned you in his image. What does it mean to see? To see means that you realize that you are not better than somebody else. You are, you're not worse than somebody else. You're a sinner in need of a savior. To see 
In order to see, you must first recognize your fundamental blindness to the great truth of the goodness of God. And when God has revealed himself in Jesus, when he has sent the light of the world, that's what he says. I am the light of the world. All of our eyes begin to have scales fall fall from them. And we begin to see the light, the true light. Years ago, I read a book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard, the American author. And she described in that book the pioneering surgery for cataracts. When, when, when the cataract surgery was being developed and, and they figured out that people were going unnecessarily and prematurely blind because I think of a mineralization of, I'm not sure if it's the lens or the cornea or something's going on there. And uh, they figured out a surgery. They could make people see again. They could take people that were blind and they could go do this surgery. And in the pioneering days of the cataract surgery, they encountered people that had been blind from early mineralization for for 10, 20, 30 or more years. And, And Dillard tells the story of some that had been blind for so long that when they got the surgery and got their sight back, they opted to wear black night, like just to cover their eyes in a dark mask so that no light could get in because they preferred to be blind. They had become so accustomed to blindness that they didn't want to see the light. Oh man, that is such a profound illustration for many of us. Many of us have become so accustomed to living in the darkness of selfishness, in the darkness of self-absorption, in the darkness of this world, that when the light of the goodness of God in Jesus comes to us, we say, I don't want to see that. I would rather be blind. Jesus was on full display in all of his messianic glory and identity for the religious leaders to see. And they asked the question, are we blind or do we see? And Jesus said, well, if you said we were blind, you'd be off the hook. But since you say you see, your sin remains. God has given us ample opportunity to find the light. And the light is Jesus, the light that lights every man that comes into the world. And yeah, that light can be painful when God begins to shine his laser ophthalmological light into your soul. You realize that you've got some problems. You've got some flat sides. You've got some issues. The short version is, is that you're a sinner. But the good news is that the rabbis were wrong. It's not that God doesn't hear sinners. Jesus did hear sinners. He heard that man's plea and he went to him. He presented himself to him. You come to the realization when God shines his laser light into your life. I'm broken. I don't just need some counseling. I don't just need some advice. I don't just need a a little pick me up. I need a savior. I need to be saved. I need to be saved from myself. I need to be saved from consumerism, from materialism, from selfishness. I need to be saved. And friends, when we realize that we need to be saved, life just becomes so much easier. It becomes just liberating, just to shake off that self-satisfaction and that that self-trust that we have, the self-dependence that we natively possess. And just to cast it all on Jesus, just to give it to Jesus. And if we ever find ourselves in over our head theologically or philosophically and somebody asks us a question that we don't quite know the answer to, we can always revert back to the one thing that we know for certain. I know one thing. I know this one thing. I used to be blind and I'm not anymore. I see myself for what I actually am. I see my family. I'm seeing the world. David has been walking us through his experience of seeing a situation that any of us, be honest, any of us in this tent would regard David's situation as totally undesirable. Right? Like if we found out that our son or our daughter was going to be born with a series of congenital defects and we would be like, whoa, whoa, that's too much. 
And, and yet here somebody has stood in front of us and said, I'm a better person. It's not that God caused it, but God is using it. It's brought so much joy to my life. And, and, and most of us in this room are saying, that's good for David. But I imagine many of us are saying, I'm glad that that's working for somebody. But I don't want that experience. Friends, the truth is, is that we are so we are so deceived by comfort. We live like kings on the earth. We live like kings on the earth. And the truth of the matter is, is that we have become, as David spoke tonight, we have become deceived by comfort. We have become deceived by a, an incorrect diagnostic and assessment of our own condition. And Jesus, the great physician, says, you are all blind, but I am the light of the world. And he comes to each one of us and says, do you believe in the Son of God? 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 And the answer, our answer should be, Lord, who is the Son of God that I may believe in him? To which Jesus gives us the answer, I am he. You have both seen him and see him now. And then our response should be just automatic. One thing I know, now I believe. And then that's followed by, get this right, that's followed by worship. I'm going to invite Josh to come up and And bring us to that worship part of this. The worship part. He's going to sing a song. It's not a song you know, probably. But it's a a song that that is going to enable us through the dexterity and the skill that he possesses and the beautiful song to, to worship God as the giver and the creator of all good things, including but not limited to music. And so we respond tonight, not with singing, but singing in our hearts and, and saying, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief, but we do believe. I once was blind, but now I see. How many people here tonight want to say, there's one thing I know, at least one. I was blind, but now I see. Raise your hand, Sabbath. Do you see tonight? I was blind, but now I see. And how many tonight want to say, show me the Son of God and, and, and we say, here's Jesus and say, Lord, I believe. How many tonight? Lord, I believe. I believe. I believe. And then going forward from here, number three, don't miss this point. Going forward from here, you can live a life of worship. We've discussed this already last night. To live a life of worship where every action, every activity, every experience can become something that you share with God, something that you share with Jesus. Your life becomes a life of worship. Josh is going to sing us this beautiful song titled Find the Light and then I'll come up and make a final appeal. upon you peace I wish upon you grace I wish for less of what you want and more of what you need I wish upon you an old life with a heart that stays young but most of all I wish upon you love wish upon you true when all you feel is doubt I hope you know that an open mind still knows when to shut things out I wish upon you a brave heart 
bow our heads we're going to go old school on our appeal tonight I want to make an appeal with heads bowed and eyes closed I I feel impressed to make an appeal tonight for that person or persons who in some new sense or in some newly significant sense needs to find the light Darkness can come in lots of different forms. Darkness can come as unbelief. Darkness can come as being unsaved, not possessing assurance of salvation. Darkness can come in the form of self-absorption. And the life of ease and comfort that deceives us that David has been talking about. Darkness can come in the form of addiction. And addiction comes in a variety of flavors, tailor-made to many different circumstances, situations, and personalities. Darkness can come in lots of ways. But the light of the world comes in just one way, and that's Jesus. 
Jesus did not say, I am one of many lights. I am one of many ways. I am one of many truths. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Jesus is the light that can lighten your personal darkness. So I want to give you tonight an opportunity to respond. We're going to make another appeal tomorrow morning. But tonight, a a specific appeal and a private appeal. Is there a person or persons here tonight that in some new sense needs to find the light or more precisely needs to be found by the light? This man here was found by Jesus in the temple. I want to tell you something tonight. Jesus can find you in this tent right here tonight. Right here tonight. Jesus can come and find you in this tent. In some new sense or perhaps in the first ever sense. Jesus can find you here. Are you in darkness? Are you in the darkness of self-absorption or addiction? Are you in the darkness of unbelief? Are you in the darkness of doubt? Are you in the darkness of pain or of despair? Are you in the darkness of hypocrisy? Tonight, you just need to call out and say, I need Jesus to find me in the connections tent. I need Jesus to find me here tonight. I can't go out of this tent in the darkness. I might trip and fall. I need to be found tonight by Jesus. And I want to tell you, you respond to that and Jesus will find you. He will come because he hears the prayers and the pleas of sinners. Is there anybody tonight in hopeful desperation that just needs to raise their hand in privacy? Just raise their hand and say, I need out of darkness. Raise your hand right now. I need Jesus to get me out of this darkness. I need to be found in the connections tent tonight. Just raise your hand to heaven. God sees that hand. He looks down. He looks down and he sees that hand. And you know what he says? He says, I will be found by you and I will find you. Right here. Stewart's Point Big Camp. Friday night. Rain is falling. Darkness all around us. And you can be found tonight. Raise your hand high to heaven if you need to be found. God looks down and he sees your hand. God looks down and he sees your heart. And he says, my daughter, I see you. I found you. My son, I see you. I found you. You are mine and I am yours. Father, you see our hands. We raise them high. Rescue us from the darkness of ourselves. Rescue us from our perceived sightedness where we think we see, but we are like the Pharisees blind. Father, tonight we raise our hand. We are tired from the search and we are tired from the fleeing. We need you to find us. So tonight we're counting on you to be God. We're counting on you to be good. 
counting on Jesus to hear the prayer of sinners. Because we're praying in his name. Let everyone say, Amen. Turn to the person next to you and say, God hears the prayer of sinners. Turn to the person next to you. Say, God hears the plea of sinners. Turn to that person next to you. Give them a big hug. Give them a big hug. We'll see you here tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. We're going to have an amazing Sabbath service. Be here tomorrow morning. We're going to have an awesome Sabbath service tomorrow night, an amazing Sabbath concert. God bless you all. Have a great night.